Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the show that puts you, the listener, in the driver's seat because you are the content. The phone lines are open to be a part of the program. It's a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. Give me a call and we'll have a conversation about your tech questions or business and tech questions. Linux advocate, above all else, small business owner, and now host of the only radio show centered around you, the listener. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. My name is Noah Chalaya. So I hope you guys are having a really great Memorial Day weekend and uh, you are as happy to be back into the swing of things as I am. See, at the Ask Noah Show... We don't take breaks. We don't take vacations. We go full steam ahead, uh, even when it's a holiday. So last week I made an assertion that Linux was more was a more advanced platform for security, and I stand by that. Um, there are, of course, some people uh, that challenged my assertion last week, And they gave me some interesting reading material about uh, Windows 10 and how far Windows 10 has come. And I will admit, I learned some things. Um, Windows 10 has definitely come a long way from a security perspective. Everything since XP really has come a long way from a security perspective. And it's been a massive improvement from a security standpoint anyway. That said, I will not only stand by my assertion that I made last week that Linux is a superior operating system with regards to security, but I will double down and say that if you are using computers to run your business, you should be looking for a platform that offers a a platform that offers security with a forward momentum. Because security is not a static thing. You guys are saying, "No, what are you talking about?" But we don't just reach the finish line, and then all of a sudden, yay, we did it. Now we're as secure as Linux. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. Don't get me wrong, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal a line from Matt Hartley here. If you can execute code, you can execute malicious code. So, And that's full stop. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Linux is not immune from malicious code, and nobody is saying that. But take it from somebody who locked himself out of his Lux encrypted drive the other week and then tried to break back in unsuccessfully, despite knowing what I knew about the password, we in the Linux world are so far ahead of other platforms when it comes to security that it's ridiculous. And I I sincerely wish them all goodwill and, and good luck moving forward, but, but they have, I don't think at this point they have a prayer of catching up to us. Windows 7 and everything after after Windows 7 has, you know, they've they have implemented things like privilege escalation. So in English, if you're one of the people that are listening to us that don't speak geek, so to speak, um, if you have a program that wants to do something more powerful, then because that more powerful thing could do something bad, it asks you for your password before it runs. And that's, you know, the thing is that we have been doing that in the Linux world since, I don't know, the 90s. So Good for Windows. Good for you, Windows. You're so cute. You finally caught up. But I started to think about this over the last week, and what I realized is that we are continually pulling ahead in the security realm. And so 
where Windows has caught up to us with privilege es- escalation and, and a number of other things, we now have things like SE Linux. Now, before I tell you what SE Linux is, if you haven't heard of it before, let me tell you what SE Linux is not. SE Linux is not the thing that you just turn off the first time you boot your server. <laughs> because I have worked uh, with Red Hat and SE Linux for a very long time, and what I have found time and time again is that I will go to work for these clients. And what these clients do is they will tell me, we have a policy that you just shut SE Linux off. And the first thing out of my mouth when I hear a client tell me that is, okay, first I'd like you to explain to me what SE Linux is, then I would like you to explain to me how SE Linux works, and then if you still want to turn it off, let's have that discussion. And we have AltaSpeed Technologies started in December of 2009. We have never had a client to date that could that could explain to us what SE Linux was and still wanted it turned off. Because the reality is, most of the time, the, the, the animosity towards SE Linux stems from ignorance, um, just lack of knowledge, really, just lack of understanding of how the thing works. And it just, it tends to get inside of your way and prevents you from getting the thing done that you want to get done. Once you explain, or once I explain to a client what SE Linux is, why it's there, why it works, why it, and, and how it works, and how you use it, and then I ask them, you know, would you be willing to leave it on? I've yet to have a client tell me they still want me to turn it off. And that's the problem. Because as a community, instead of learning how a really cool new piece of technology works, we just ignore it sometimes because it gets in the way of how we like to get things done. And I, I, am, not, I am not saying that I am not guilty of this. I am just saying that it's a hazardous behavior, particularly when it comes from an IT security standpoint, because I am the last person that wants things to change. I hate change. I like things to be the same. That's why I'm an LTS user. That's why I'm a, I'm a Red Hat user. I only have to deal with new versions of software once every five years. If I, you know, if, yeah, sometimes I can stretch it even longer than that. I don't like change. But from a security perspective, you have to be willing to accept change and you have to be willing to roll with the punches, so to speak. So what is SE Linux? SE Linux stands for Security Enhanced Linux. It's a kernel module, essentially, that that you put into place to allow you to to facilitate access control security policies. So in English, it makes your computer more secure. SE Linux, at least the core concept of SE Linux, was actually developed by the NSA. A quote taken from the NSA SE Linux team, Security Enhanced Linux is a set of patches to the Linux kernel and some utilities to incorporate a strong, flexible, mandatory access control architecture into the major subsystems of the kernel. It provides an enhanced mechanism to enforce the separation of information based on the confidentiality and integrity requirements, which allows threats of tampering and bypassing of application security mechanisms to be addressed and enables uh, the, uh, the confinement of damage that can be caused by a malicious or flawed application. It includes a set of sample security policies, configuration files designed to meet common or general purpose security goals. So what all of that means is that the NSA said, Linux is a very secure operating system. It works very, very well for us. And we can make it a little bit better if we can say that things like a web server never need to access files outside of the web server. And if for some strange reason, 
we had something located somewhere else that we wanted that web server to do, we want to have to take a step to tell the web server that it is allowed to access these files outside of this place. You know, SSH, for example, if it's looking at the authorized keys file, that's the only file it needs you know, for reference. I'm, I'm making this up off the top of my head. There's, obviously, there's other things that the SSH daemon would need to access, but we know roughly what those things are. And if the SSH daemon tries to work outside of that, we want to have a block it first, and then we will address it and see if that's actually what we want the computer to do. It works very well if you want to harden up you know, a, a, a server. So we can obviously enable or we can disable SE Linux. And if you want to see what SE Linux is currently doing, you can simply use the get enforce command. It's all run together, get enforce. And it will tell you it's running in permissive or it's running in disabled or it's running in um, enforcing. Now, if you want to enable or disable SE Linux, we do that in Etsy slash sysconfig slash SE Linux. And inside of that file, there's just a there's it's just a text file, and it just says like this is the mode that SE Linux is going to run to, and you just type in whatever you want. You type in uh, disabled if you want, or permissive and enforcing. I'm going to get to that in a second. Now we can tell SE Linux to start up or not to start up, but in order to change it from disabled to enabled or from enabled to disabled, that's going to require a reboot because it has to actually load the thing into the kernel. And of course, if you're asking me, there's no time ever that SE Linux should be set to disabled. Every time I have come across a software manufacturer or vendor that says our software is designed to work without SE Linux enabled, again, it's kind of the same conversation we have with clients where if you just kind of talk to them for a little bit, you realize pretty quickly that they just really have no idea what they're, what they're doing with SE Linux and they haven't really messed with SE Linux. And so they just tell you to turn it off because it gets in their way. And if you have just a very basic understanding of how context-based security works, you can you can kind of look at it and say, oh, okay, well, if I just made these couple of little changes, this would work just fine. In the infinite wisdom of the SE Linux team, they gave us two modes when SE Linux is enabled, and those two are enforcing and permissive. Now, enforcing does exactly what you would expect it to do given its name. If there's something that SE Linux finds as a violation, it then blocks that process and prevents it from happening. So web server is told, you are to read these files in this directory and this directory only. And all of a sudden, somehow that process gets compromised. Or maybe it doesn't. Maybe we just modified the web process and we wanted to access something outside of the system. Either way, it goes out and tries to access another file in the system. And SE Linux says, nope, can't do that. You're done. You, you can't do that. Um, and then it logs that, obviously, to, that, to, to let you know what happened. Now, if we put SE Linux into permissive mode, it's... It's going to actually not block anything, but it will log it as if it were going to block it. And so it's kind of like it's kind of like running SE Linux in a trial mode. What would SE Linux actually do? And this is really, really cool because it means that we can see what SE Linux would have done should it have been running. And so and we have done this countless times. If it's in a production server that needs to be up no matter what. And you'll get that. You know, you get a lot of uh, clients. We do the security triangle, right? Um, and we explain all of the, the, you know, how we go about that in our process and stuff like that. And you'll get clients that will say, listen, that's all great. We are in the fourth part of the security triangle that you didn't talk about, which is this thing will be up 100% of the time. And, and, and I, we don't care, but it's not, it's not about, it's not just usability for us. It's this will be up. It will not go down. So you do whatever you have to do with all your funny security stuff. You make sure this doesn't go up. You get somebody like that. We'll start it in 
permissive mode. And we will just track the what is what is happening with SE Linux and then see if something would have gotten blocked. And then once we know that the server is running properly, then we'll go back and you know button it down, tighten it up. You can go from enforcing to permissive without having to reboot the server because SE Linux is still running. It's just not actually taking action. And there's a command for that, set enforce. So we use get enforce to actually see what the thing is doing. We can use set enforce and then equals one or zero, depending on if we want it to be in permissive or enforcing. Now, one thing I would encourage everyone that has SE Linux on their server to do, if you have SE Linux disabled, take my challenge. Take the Ask Noah challenge. Turn SE Linux on and put it into permissive mode. And just keep an eye on the thing. Um, all of the logs are slash var slash log slash audit slash audit dot log. And you can you can you can just look at that logger. You can what I do is I just grep for ABC because that's what the the ABC denial is. What is that's that's going to be the error that's going well, not an error, but that's SE Linux telling you that it attempted to block something. See, just look at that log and see if you even have any ABC denials. Again, we're taking your calls this hour one eight five five four five zero Noah. That's one 855 Call doesn't have to be about SE Linux. doesn't have to be about security at all. You can ask me questions about your Linux computer. Ask me questions about your business or business idea, as it were. Now, we manage SE Linux using policies. So by default, there are three different types of policies that you can have. And they are targeted, minimum, and MLS. Now, targeted is, in my opinion anyway the best policy, because everything on the system is going to be protected. And it's actually the default. So if you don't want to dig into what policies are and how they work, then don't mess with it. Just leave it as targeted. And I, that's how all of my systems are set up, and I'm very happy with them that way, my personal systems. There, uh, there is a minimum policy where only some of the processes are protected under SE Linux, and they bill it as a – if you run this thing, if you've got some applications that, you know, you know, need to, you know, need to be excluded from SE Linux. If I, I mean, if I have my choice between running minimum policy and having SE Linux disabled entirely, I guess I'll take minimum. But really, you're leaving a large portion of your system unprotected and, again – if you just take a couple of minutes and look at how the thing works, I think what you'll find is that it's actually like really straightforward, easy to manage. Um, it's just people don't know. And finally, you have MLS. Now, MLS is amazing. And I could spend three shows talking about MLS and why MLS is amazing. MLS is basically like SE Linux on steroids. If you are the super paranoid, if you really want to dig your feet in deep and you want to make sure that your machine is extremely locked down and you want very granular control, MLS is the way to go. It is an extremely advanced multi-level security system, but it's way too complicated for us to cover on this radio program. So we're just – we'll – Talk about the fact that it exists. When you open the policy up, you can you go to look at the different policies thing. If you choose to do that, you can choose which policy you want to use. Or like I said, don't touch it at all and it'll just work in targeted, which is what I would do if I were you. But just know that if you're getting into it and you're like, man, SE Linux is cool, but there are some really cool things I could do. I could think to make it do. Probably does them. You just have to do – you just have to use uh, uh, MLS. 
Okay, so maybe I have talked you into leaving SC Linux on your system and leave it running. So now how do you actually use the thing? Well, I, I, I don't know where this term came from. I think it started on user error, but I, I've, I've gained the term the old grump, and uh, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and just own it. I am an old grump, and the old grump in me says do it with SC Manage, F, uh, F context, which is it's a, it's a command line uh, tool, SC Manage, security enhanced or SE, for, short for SE Linux, SE Manage, space, F context, which basically allows you to add labels, which is what SE Linux uses to make decisions. So if I'm losing you, stay with me for another two minutes and I will bring it home for you. If you were to open a terminal and you typed LS, we would see a list of all the files. Most people that have administrated a Linux server, at least I hope, have run the LS command and seen a list of files come out. If you run ls-tac-z, capital Z, you will see the context of every file. Now, every file on your system has context. Inside of the context, you have three things. You have the user, you have the role, and you have the type. Now, the good news for getting started with SE Linux is we really only have to worry about the type. So if we're looking at a given file, we can see what the context type is. And then, if we want... Uh, we can modify a file's context. We can use the se manage f context tac a tac t tac t excuse me and apply a context to a given file. So we can change that context type. And if this is if this sounds confusing to you, we have a link. I've got a link in the show notes, and it will make much more sense than what I'm explaining out loud here. But suffice to say, trust me when I tell you that se Linux is one of those things that. Sounds very complicated, but it's stupid simple once you actually get into it and you see how the thing works. Um, we got – when I was doing last, one of the things that we got requested over and over and over again was to do something on Linux firewalls. And uh, we never did a how-to, at least during my time there, um, partly because Linux firewalls legitimately are a black hole. Like it starts out fairly simple. But the more you dig into it, the more really cool things you can do, but the more complicated it gets. And I just – I could never figure out how to make a very concise tutorial. And I think that more people have experience managing firewalls than they do managing SE Linux. And the, the truth is I actually find SE Linux to be much more down-to-earth and straightforward than, than the firewall subsystem, again, excluding MLS. And all that said, some of you are still thinking, nope, I'm out. That sounds terrible and uh, – this is this is uh, this is I'm just I'm not going to do any of that. And to you, I say this is where my friends at Fedora are paving the way for you. How many of you, by show of hands over the radio, everyone raise their hand. How many of you have heard of Cockpit? Hopefully all of you have heard of Cockpit. Cockpit is a glorious way to manage servers in 2017. It is. It's basically the 2017 way to manage your server. You literally get a dashboard for your server. And I know how much you guys love that word. So we're going to this is the first time I'm using it on the Ask Noah show. You get a dashboard for your server that runs locally right there on your box. And uh, when you sign into it for the first time, it's literally a single command to install it on a Fedora box anyway. You start it up. You, you, you go to the IP of the server at the port number and you get real time stats about the server. You have a terminal. Have you ever had one of those times where you are messing around with SSH and you're locking something down? And then you uh, you go to restart the SSH daemon. You can try and log in. And um, those of us that have done this before know to keep one window 
SSHed in and try a second window and establish a second connection. But let's say you fat fingered the window, you closed it. Now you try and log back in. Oops, you can't. You get rejected. That ever happened to you? Happened to me. Cockpit has a built-in virtual console right inside of the little web dashboard thing. So you can go back in, undo whatever you had to do, or poke whatever hole you have to poke in the firewall. All there right on your server. You know what else Cockpit has? You guessed it. An easy, intuitive way to manage SE Linux. Now, full disclaimer, I don't actually have any of this stuff in production at the moment because... Well, as I said, I'm a grumpy old man and I do everything from the CLI, but I have played with Cockpit and it is seriously next level awesome. Also, I'm fully aware that because I know there's somebody writing me an email right now, I am fully aware that the uh, whatever it's called, SE Linux troubleshooter or something, whatever that tool is, I know that it does some of the stuff that I'm about to talk about. But here's the thing. It's a graphical tool. So like point oh 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 one percent of the time i have a graphical interface on my server the other 99.9999 percent of the time i have a blinking cursor so the little uh, uh graphical it pops up and tells you when there's a denial or whatever that doesn't really apply to most scenarios um but in cockpit you have a graphical way to manage uh, AVC denials. So you'll actually, if you're logged into cockpit, you'll actually see where it pops up and it's a, it has a little thing that says AVC denial, which is, you know, SE Linux did something. And uh, then it, it has some suggestions on what to do. Now, when you click on the denial, it will say, here's, here's an example of some of the things you could do to fix the issue that you're having. So for example, do you want to just change the label? Do you want, you know, is, is the command doing what you want it to do and it just needs a different security context label? Here's the command, then the, the what we think the label should be. If you just apply this, that will fix it. Or maybe you want this process to have access to this file. Well, run this command. Or maybe you think SE Linux just totally screwed up and you need to file a bug. And, uh, you know, obviously there's no this command because it tells you you get to file a bug. But it gets even better because not only does it give you the commands, so if you are you know, ninja-like and you want to do the command foo thing, it gives you those commands, but it has a freaking button next to each one of these solutions. So you want to apply a fix? Click the button. Boom. Done. No excuse. No excuse whatsoever not to use SE Linux. Seriously, though, Cockpit is, um, Cockpit is amazing. It is, it is really awesome, and I include myself when I say this, but we should all be using it more in production. It, it, would, it would probably save a ton of time, and before anyone writes me any hate mail, cock, uh, Cockpit is not just a Fedora thing. Runs on Ubuntu, runs on Debian, runs on Arch. So we're good. We have a link uh, for Cockpit. It's uh, cockpit-project.org. We'll have that link in the show notes for you. And uh, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to seriously start playing with Cockpit more and more. I was playing with the Cockpit um, SE Linux thing just this week for... Uh, to, to do ask Noah to talk about the show. And I just, I was looking at it. I'm like, gosh, this is a really cool thing. All right. Phone lines, one 450 noah That's one 450 We're talking about SE Linux and uh, how Linux is just a better operating system in general, how cockpit is amazing. Basically all the Linux things are amazing. We don't talk about them enough. All right. Let's see here. Who do we have here? We have uh, blue. Hi, blue. Well, oh, I got to click the button. Then I say, hi, blue. Welcome to the ask Noah show. Hey Noah. Hi there. How can we help today? Uh, um, I just got off the phone with my mom's friends who were trying. They're fixing to be my clients, 
in, in their old, old school, old, old school, and they've been trying to get me to explain the GPL licensing, and I, I'm getting... I'm doing all this and I'm blowing, they're not, they're, I'm basically getting over their head. Is there an easier way to explain this to them? They're, I've tried three different ways and I thought you would know it. Well, I will answer your, I'll answer your question and then I'll tell you, well, first let me tell you this. Let me tell you why I wouldn't explain the GPL. I know that's a very Reddit slash forum thing to do. You ask, how, how do I set up a web server? Well, let me tell you why you shouldn't set up a web server. You know, I, I, re- I, I acknowledge that off the bat, but most people don't care about the GPL. And to some extent, when I am wor- as a working professional, I'm aware of the GPL. I like the GPL. I am very thankful that the GPL is there because it legitimately has allowed Linux to get to the point where it is. And I don't think it would be there without the GPL. But at the same time, it's not necessarily a very – it's not always a very sellable thing. It's not necessarily something that a lot of people care about except for the fact that oftentimes you can twist it into a bot- – not twist it, but you can show them how it affects their bottom line and then then they care about that. You're talking about a family member or this is – you're talking about your client? My client and my mom's was wondering too. They're yeah. all – it says on my it says on my screen yeah that's why I was asking it said on my screen here your mom okay so um so I'll tell you how I would explain it if if I were going to explain it, and again I I might look at other selling points of of Linux or free and open source software rather than uh, rather than the GPL but here's here's how I explain um, GPL or open source software in general is I use the cookie analogy so I say Oreo for example they make a pretty good cookie do we agree. Yep. Yeah, I like Oreos. So, especially the new double stuffed ones. So, Nabisco <laughs> makes Oreo and they have a given recipe that they've developed over I don't know how many years and uh and then they keep that recipe very very secret and then they pump out a bunch of Oreos. And you can go to the store and you can pay a certain amount of money and and buy an Oreo. Now, if anyone else in the world ever has a slightly better idea of how to improve an Oreo, there's really nothing you can do about it. You either buy the Oreo or you don't buy the Oreo. And people like me that were waiting for double stuffed Oreos, we just had to wait until they actually came out. Versus if you look at like uh, allrecipes.com, right? They have a bunch of recipes for, for cookies. And what ends up happening is you find people that they'll take a recipe and then they'll say, well, they'll tweak a couple things and then they'll upload their own version of that recipe. And you can kind of you can kind of start to draw a parallel and say, what do you think would have where do you think the better cookie recipe comes from? Where one company pays a certain set of cooks to sit inside of a lab and come up with the best cookie? Or everyone out there, everyone who likes cookies, all the cookie eaters eat the cookies and then start saying, Here's how we can improve the cookie, or here's how we can make some changes to make this cookie better. And if the, and if you get to a point, a fork in the road, so to speak, where you have two cookies that are really good, but they just meet two different requirements. Some people like chocolate chips and some people are uh, terrible human beings and like oatmeal raisin. If you come to that fork in the road, then oatmeal raisin people can go make their cookie and chocolate chip people can make their cookie and we can have two cookies for people to enjoy. And that's the kind of forking that you don't get inside of traditional proprietary software. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, that that makes a little bit more sense to me. <laughs> okay, well, that I mean that that's the best I can do for um, 
for how to explain the GPL to somebody. But I got to reinforce this again. The amount of times that I have sat in, inside of a meeting and said, well, Mr. CEO, Mr. CFO, let me explain to you the, uh, the real advantages of GPL software. That conversation pretty much starts and stops with vendor lock-in. And they really don't care about anything else. And I try to stay away from talking about cost for two reasons. One is I don't think it's a fair representation of um, a GPL software because you can charge $10,000 for GPL software if you want to. You just have to give them the source code with it. Um, so just because a lot of people are giving their projects away from you know for free does not necessarily mean that we should take advantage of that and just say, well, you know, if you use this, it just doesn't cost any money. In fact, I try and take the opposite approach and say, you know, this is a particularly good piece of software. It happens to be funded by a very small group of people. And so, you know, we'll just roll the cost into the software. And then if it's a, if it's an organization, we donate that back. Or if it involves a lot of setup time, um, we just usually use the cost of the setup to, to kind of offset it so that, so that something on paper is going down as this piece of software is getting paid for. But the second reason is because I think it kind of cheapens the brand, so to speak. When you go out there and tell people, yeah, it's the, uh, it's the Ubuntu. It's the free operating system. Well, it's not a free operating system. Canonical spent millions and millions of dollars to develop the thing. It's, it's a very expensive operating system, actually. They're just, out of the goodness of their heart, allowing you to use it at no perceived cost, you know, you know, added cost to you doesn't mean it's a free operating system. So I, I don't like the term for a number of reasons. And so I stay away from the cost of it altogether. But, you know, if you're sitting in a meeting, that's oftentimes the only thing that people care about. All right. Robert is calling from uh, Iowa. Hi, Robert. Welcome to the Ask Noah show. Hi, Noah. I, uh, I have an old exchange server I'd like to replace with something used in Linux. And I needed to have similar functionality in Outlook, like shared calendars, mobile syncing, etc. cetera. Uh, what do you suggest? I'll be honest with you, um, coming from the guy who doesn't really like cloud, I'm going to tell you G Suite, and let me tell you why. G Suite is a drop-in replacement for Exchange, drop-in replacement. And by drop-in replacement, I mean we did a client, um, and I was really nervous because at the time I'd never done a large Exchange migration to G Suite before, and I was actually considering bringing paying a subcontractor in that managed Exchange professionally to kind of oversee the entire process <clears throat> and talk with the, the people at Google. And they said, that's not necessary. We have this down to a fine science and uh, you will not have any, any serious hiccups. And uh, for the most part, that turned out to be very true. They, they give you a little executable and you run the executable and it says, give me the most privileged user you have on your exchange server. You give it that information. It says, okay, one second. Talks to the exchange server. says, okay, here are all the accounts I found. Are all these correct? You say, yep, yep, that's all my accounts. Okay, go. And it will log in to every one of those accounts. It copies all of their emails. It copies all of their calendars. It copies all of their um, contacts. It puts everything up into, uh, into, into G Suite. Then the little executable thing spits out another little executable, and you go around to each workstation that has Outlook installed. You double-click on that executable. It says, okay, I was previously connected to this Exchange server. Now I'm connecting to the G Suite server. And this is the account I have on here. That's the one you want to use on G Suite? Yes. Okay, one second. And automatically switches everything over to G Suite. The clients have no idea. Here's where I got bit. It does not migrate tasks. And we were doing a, a, a very large client that had um, – they were using tasks to manage all of their dates um, for important things, important meetings, things that they were doing. And – it didn't import any of those, and at no point in the 
planning meetings did anyone mention tasks they just kept saying we use outlook we use exchange we use outlook we use exchange you know make sure our calendars get backed up our contacts our emails all of those things they mentioned and we got all those moved over nobody mentioned tasks and so if tasks are stored on outlook itself you can import them one time but there is no way to sync uh tasks uh, you know, and, and have like in Outlook, you can actually share tasks with other users and stuff like that. You can't do any of that on G Suite. I am told by the fine folks at Google that they are working on that and that they are going to have that available in the in the very near future. But at the moment, task is not available. Is that would that help you or is it something you're really hoping for something self-hosted? Oh, no, that's that's perfectly fine. Uh, I'm just looking for something to migrate to as soon as possible. And uh, we didn't really want to spend a whole lot of money, so I think that'll work out pretty good. How many how many users do you have? Uh, roughly about a hundred. Oh, you're at, you are oh you're golden. So here is the dirty little secret about uh, about uh, G Suite. If you're over if you're under ten users, it's still it's a, it's an okay process. I've since done it a couple of times, and it, it still works out. Um, you you uh, sign up. It's five bucks per month per user, so it's not terrible. Um, and then they uh, they'll set everything up for you, and they say, "Here you go. Here are the uh, you know applications that you can run the little data migration tool in the Google Sync for Outlook." They give you those, and you go and run it. However, if you're over, and I think it's ten users or fifteen users or something like that, you're well over that. They will assign a migration specialist to you. He is available. He or she is available twenty four hours a day. They'll give you their direct contact number, and throughout the entire migration. Period. If you ever have any issue, you just you call your you tell them I'm migrating on X day, and say okay, all right, we'll have that scheduled. And that person is available to you. If at any point you run into any trouble, you pick up the phone, you call them, you say, hey, I ran into this issue. They go, oh, okay, no problem, hold on, and they'll remote into your system and help you solve any any little issues. And that, let me tell you, the, I, I was fortunate enough that the first migration I did was over 15 users, so it we had that available to us. And oh my God, is that next level service? It was incredible. So yeah, I reach reach out to uh, reach out to the G Suite team. Reach out to to Google. You can go on there. You can sign up just yourself online if you want to do that. Um, and then uh, and then yeah, you, you, if you call them though, they'll and tell them I'm I'm moving a hundred users. They will, you will get their attention, and they will uh, they'll offer you a, a bit more help. The other thing that's really kind of nice about G Suite is the management interface is incredible. So you can create users. Uh, and reset their passwords and migrate data and share calendars, all that stuff from from a central management point, which is which is really cool. And then G Suite will tie in, of course, to their teleconferencing solution, which is basically like a enterprise version of Hangouts. And you get that with the I think the, the service comes with G Suite. I think you have to buy the uh, the hardware separately. I, I'm not exactly sure how all that works. I've never had to. Never had to, to pay for any of it. It's always it always built up to a client. And full disclaimer, at AltaSpeed, we don't actually use uh, G Suite. We use FastMail. I don't. Google keeps saying that they don't data mine anything on business email. I don't know if I entirely believe that. And I I think there's been rumors that they've been caught doing it. And I know they've been caught doing it in the educational market, which they said they weren't going to do. So we use FastMail, and uh, I don't have the need to tie into Outlook because we're using Thunderbird and lately Nihilus. Um So. I, I'm not worried about it t- tying in, but G Suite is a fantastic way to do a drop-in uh, exchange. And I have done, I have, I have worked on hosted exchange, I've worked on self-hosted exchange, and I have worked on G Suite. And like um, GoDaddy, for example, has a uh, like a, it's kind of like a hosted exchange thing. I think it's like a stripped-down version, but um, it's, it can't even touch G Suite, and G Suite is actually cheaper. 
Okay, uh, Jay is calling. Hi, Jay. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. How's it going, Noah? Hi. How can we help? So uh, I'm sort of uh, like many nerds out there who are addicted to uh, getting flash drives on the cheap, and I'm wondering, as an IT pro, do you use a lot of flash drives on your um, whenever you work on other systems, and how do you get like the best deal possible for um, uh, flash storage and other storage stuff? If you go on Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash kernel Linux and scroll back eight, nine months ago, I had, there was, I got into a Twitter war with somebody, uh, and they were challenging me that they had more flash drives than I have. And, uh, I got a lot of flash drives. I have so many flash drives I have in my, um, in my workbench at my house, I have two drawers and the first drawer is just flat, just blank flash drives or they're used for something, but I don't need them. I can, I can reuse them for something else. The second drawer are, is filled with flash drives that I use for specific purposes. So like I always want to have a, uh, an Ubuntu 16.04 installation on hand. I always want to have a CentOS USB stick on hand. And so I've got those two drawers filled, you know, with every imaginable distro and utility, parted magic, whatever there are, those are all in the second drawer. And then I have a third little bag that I carry with me, a little craftsman uh, tool bag. And I carry the most important uh, flash drives, uh, duplicates of those with me. So I have a uh, system recovery uh, utils, whatever that uh, distro is that lets you recover. It's really great. I have a Linux distro that will let you delete the um, NT password file on Windows, which uh, is is actually, side rant, that's kind of a cool little tool. I should find out exactly what the name of it is, and we should talk about it sometime because uh, it's it's scary simple. You plug in the back of a Windows computer, boot the Windows computer, tell it to boot off the flash drive. It logs you into this little you know, console thing. And you just see all of the users that are there. Click on the user, click delete, and it deletes the, uh, the password. Then you can, you can get in assuming of course it's not, you know, it's not encrypted, but I carry that with me. I carry Ubuntu, I carry CentOS and, um, uh, but Clonezilla and, and parted magic, all four of those are in, are with me anytime I'm anywhere. It doesn't matter where I am. I always, I have them with me right now. Um, as to where I get them, it depends on what I'm doing with them. We order a, a lot of flash drives, there's an eBay seller, and I'll put the link in the show notes. Um, he has uh, basically bulk flash drives. He sells them 10 at a time, and they're aluminum. And the nice thing about them being aluminum is that they're very easy to engrave. So we take them, we buy them. It's like a wholesaler from China or something like that. And we uh, we buy them, and then we take them over to our local printing shop, and they engrave our logo on them and put, you know, AltaSpeed Technologies. And uh, those are the ones that we use to give if, like, a client needs files or something like that, or we do a ton of... Um, um, footage recovery for the police department. And so they'll say, you know, uh, some, how many gigs? Uh, they're available in two, four, eight, sixteen, 16, I believe. Okay. And um, also um, uh, in terms of your Linux and, and your Linux distro on the USB drive, is that persistent, persistent or is that live? It's persistent. Well, oh, I'm sorry. What do you mean? Do I use them for, I, I don't, it's just install media. It's not, I'm not actually running off the, 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 the uh, flash drive. Okay, I've actually uh, done that on, a, on occasion on one of my flash drives I've used, so <laughs> well, it's a very cool experiment. So, what, uh, so uh, if it's if it's something that we're giving away, it's going to be a one-time use thing. I don't mind using the cheap Chinese ones. However, for the more important things, like for example, the the flash drive that contains uh, sixteen oh four, for example, gets used. If the one that we have at the shop, I bet that thing gets used fifty times a day. I mean, it just it's just nonstop. For that kind of use, I only buy one brand, and that is SanDisk. And the reason is we have never in the history of UltraSpeed since 2009 
had a SanDisk – I'm knocking on wood because this is going to happen now – had SanDisk flash media fail. And I mean SanDisk uh, flash drives, SanDisk SD cards. They are phenomenal. Uh, everything from the cheap one to the sand cruisers to – I actually wear one – if you ever meet me in person, I have a, uh, a little SanDisk – I don't – let's model this thing. Uh, it's a 128 gig SanDisk something, and it, uh, it I wear it on my lanyard, and I take it with me everywhere. And uh, it's it's Lux encrypted, and I just I keep a bunch of my files on there. I have another uh, SanDisk that is a it's a little M.2 drive that's in an, a USB 3 enclosure, and that's what I do. Kind of what you were talking about. I actually install a Linux distro to it, and I carry it around as kind of my go to Linux box and it just sits in my backpack. And so if I ever if I need to get onto a system where the system isn't booting or something like that. I can boot in and then I have my, a, one of my computers essentially sitting in front of me. I can check my email. I can browse the, you know, do whatever I need to do. Have my password manager, all my syncing stuff is all on that little drive. And I don't have to worry about, you know, privacy because once I restart the computer, the drive's coming with me. So that's, that's kind of how I've handled that. But, and I'll have a link to those eBay, uh, the, the, uh, eBay drives in the show notes, as well as I will put a link to a couple of my, uh, SanDisk drives. But any of them are good. SanDisk are they're fantastic. The only only issue I have with SanDisk is one is there's no real way to brand them because they're oftentimes a funky shape. And SanDisk does this thing where on the top of them, they almost always put some sort of sliding mechanism. And the sliding mechanism thingy gets in the way of like any sort of branding imprint. And the ones that they do make that are aluminum are like teeny tiny small. In fact, that's another one I have. I have the the tiniest, the smallest little thumb drive, the tiniest little SanDisk thumb drive. It's the ones that um, they're no bigger than the USB port, so they kind of vanish into the side of the laptop. And I stick those. I have a 64 gig one that I put in my Western Digital TV Live that I take with me to the lake, and I just have movies on there and stuff for the kids. Uh, Sweet Lou is calling uh, from Bradford. Hi, Sweet Lou. How are you? Hey, how's it going, Noah? How you doing? Pretty good. How are you? Oh, all right. Just enjoying my Memorial Day. Are you enjoying yours? Good, good. Yeah, actually, I just spent the whole week, uh, latter half of last week and the weekend out at the lake with the kids and my wife and had a great time, but happy to be back and happy to be on the air. How can we help today, Sweet Lou? All right. Okay. I heard you talking about SE Linux earlier in that. That's all right. Uh, I hear it was uh, Kitchen Kenny's uh, suggestion that. Um, but then... Yep. User and another user in the chat room, uh, John, that uh, started talking about Cube's OS, how secure it was. So, in uh, your honest opinion, between SD Linux and Cube's OS, and probably a regular Linux distribution like, say, Ubuntu or Fedora, which would be more secure, and why? You know, I, I'll be honest with you, I really can't answer that question because. Um, one, I've not played with Cubes OS. I, I need to look into it. Um, but two, my guess is, like when you ask about uh, SE Linux and other Linux distros, so Ubuntu has their own uh, app armor thing that, that that goes with it. And I can't, I can't honestly objectively tell you that one is better than the other. They both have merits and demerits. Um, I, SE Linux has been around for such a long time that I have become very, very familiar with it. And it's one of those things where we oftentimes fall into this habit of forgetting, overlooking the market realities because of our technical superior knowledge. So we look at something and we say, XYZ is technically superior, so we should use it, um, even though the market totally rejects it. And that's kind of how I feel about SE Linux, is 
I understand that SE Linux is a technically superior way to go than just having it turned off. And yet the market realities are just an ungodly number of my clients. I walk through the door and the first thing they tell me is, yeah, just uh, go ahead and spin up that uh, CentOS 7 box. And uh, when you get it up and running, make sure to kick off SE Linux. Uh, we, don't, we don't want any problems from that. And that has really started to get on my nerves. But um, I tell you what I'll do. I will uh, – I'll take a look into Cubes OS, Sweet Lou, and I will uh, try and get back to you later because I think uh, I, I think it would be interesting to look at some of the ways that that Linux is really pushing the ball forward with security. And not to mention, it makes me – every time somebody calls in and asks a question like that, it just kind of re-illustrates and reinforces my belief that I was getting onto the other day that, yeah, Linux is just really kind of pushing pushing forward. All right. Linux.com headline, thin client market embraces Raspberry Pi. Is the Raspberry Pi ready to take over the low-end computing client? This week, N Computing unveiled the RX HDX, its second-generation Raspberry Pi based on the thin client. In addition, ViewSonic announced a software upgrade to the Pi-based SCT25, a thin client that it, uh, that it announced last year. The future of thin clients... Low-cost, remotely-managed virtual client computer has always been a question mark. One, on one hand, dropping PC prices and increasing use of multimedia in the enterprise has slowly lowered the demand for bare-bones thin clients. Yet improvements in virtual desktop infrastructure, or VDI as we call it in the biz, and ongoing need have cut maintenance costs, support, and operating costs, and they have kept the market alive. Early last year, Citrix, one of the major virtualization software providers for thin clients, along with VMware and Microsoft, jumpstarted the plot, the Pi thin client market, by partnering with Raspberry Pi Foundation, Broadcom, ThinLinks, and others to bring its Citrix HDX remote display protocol to the Raspberry Pi. The H264 Ready Citrix HDX technology, which is available with Citrix Zen Desktop Virtual Desktop and Zen App Virtual Appliance Software, is an extension of Citrix earlier ICA protocol. It adds intel- intelligent reduction, adaptive compression, and data deduplication to boost performance, especially in multimedia. The Citrix HDX Ready Pi ships with a version of ThinLinks. TLXOS, a Raspberry and spin-off which supports VMware, Horizon Blast Extreme, and Microsoft RDP slash RemoteFX protocols, as well as Citrix HDX. It also provides a virtual client and management stack that can manage both x86 and ARM devices at one time. The TLXOS operating system runs on Intel Nooks, Compute Sticks, in addition to the Raspberry Pi 2 and 3. So, like, I was just on that call here. I, I was at the lake this weekend with my family, and I was making a very concerted effort not to work on Ulta Speed or Ask Noah stuff. There are a few times that I have to admit I snuck out and got my fix of the internet. And one of those times I was I was doing this, and I was I was hiding out in, a, in my secret spot to uh, read uh, tech pieces, and I came across this article, and I had to stop and sit down for a moment because the if you consider the enormous consequences of what we're reading here, what we're talking about. First off, I have been moving clients to virtualized infrastructures at a breakneck speed, and it's only getting faster. From a management perspective, it is much cleaner. It is much easier to maintain. From the client standpoint, the actual endpoint that they're using doesn't have to be super beefy. So if you think about it, who is going to spend $1,500 on an Optiplex desktop for everyone in their office when they can buy an R930 and put Raspberry Pis everywhere? 
The piece of the puzzle that has been obviously missing for a very long time is you need somebody like Altaspeed Technologies that are willing to look forward and say, we are not looking at the technology today. We are looking at what the technology is going to be tomorrow. And then we are going to leverage that combined with open source technology to make sure that we can provide a creative cost saving solution for you without sacrificing any quality. And we'll take something like a Raspberry Pi and say, today we can take this this uh, this very low cost computer and we can use it in a very innovative, creative way to replace some very expensive proprietary alternative. And that is the niche that AltaSpeed has filled. And that is why we make money hand over fist because we are able to be creative like that. If we we're just another IT provider, it'd be harder to compete in this world. But you need somebody like us that's willing to do that up until now. And now all of this is changing because not only can you buy a purpose-built device from a well-known company that comes out of the box ready to be used in a commercial environment, but they've built this stuff with industry support from names like Citrix and Microsoft. And then they did it on a freaking Raspberry Pi. And I was like, I, 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 I sent a, a message to, I was rehashing re this as I was kind of formulating everything for the show today. And I, I, I sent a message to Chris and I said, what world are we living in that, you know, I, I went to check the thing out on their website. They, they advertise right on their website. If you go to N Computing's website and you look at this thing, they say that they're, that they are leveraging a Raspberry Pi Zero dongle to get a second HDMI display. So you can get a dual screen setup with these things. And I haven't seen a price, but I, we, I've worked with N Computing for a long time. And I know that the, the base device is 35 bucks. So I expect the pricing to be very competitive. And if, if you just, if you back up, if you would have told me five years ago that Microsoft would be shipping Linux, in Windows and the maker of the Raspberry Pi, a computer that was built to teach kids about computers, was going to become the next generational standard for low cost computing. And at the center of all of this stuff, the very thing that keeps the heart beating was Linux. I would have thought you were nuts. I would have thought you were absolutely stark, ravingly nuts. And I am watching market after market after market leverage Linux to get closer to the Linux desktop. And I, I, I get it. I understand. It is we are talking baby steps, people, I, and I get that. Thinlinks TLX OS. It is not a Linux desktop. It's not. It's not a Fedora. It's not an Ubuntu. It is. I, I get that it is custom software to get your Citrix infrastructure so that you can get RDP. I get that. I understand that these people at the end of the day are using Windows, but in the TLX OS manual. It, there's one of the, the one of the first things you read is it'll say it'll say something like um, it says TMS and TLXOS can be downloaded from the link below. Uh, in the case of the Raspberry Pi, you can download and install it TLXOS from the link, or you can boot the Raspberry Pi from the Noobs bootloader. And while tapping the Shift key, select TLXOS from the list of bootable choices. That's in the manual. That's in the manual. And the the I the fact that an enterprise grade solution. That's going to sit in front of the user all day and included in the noobs installer for the Raspberry Pi and said noobs installer is referenced in the manual of said commercial software company as an official way to obtain their software. If that isn't progress towards Linux being everywhere, then I don't know what is. How long before it's just a package included in Raspbian? If that's not already a thing, I don't know. I haven't looked. How long before the package is included in the AUR? If that's not a thing, because again, I haven't looked. How long before people like me convince all of the people that pay me a lot of money 
to make decisions about their IT infrastructure. How, how long before we start looking at their bottom line and they realize that the way to run any sized company is to virtualize your infrastructure and leverage the power of a single computer and divide that up among many people. I rarely, rarely see a day where there's a client that's using a computer to its full potential. Every hotel we work at, and I mean every hotel we work at, they have a single piece of software, and most of them these days are web-based. It's a web browser, and they are checking people in. They don't even need the virtual infrastructure. I mean, you can do that on a Raspberry Pi with the you know Chrome or whatever. But the most cost-effective way to infrastructure is a Raspberry Pi. Oh, and by the way, while you're at it, the Raspberry Pi can actually run a ton of software locally. Because you might think that if a person was remoted into their system, that they would just do all their work on the remoted system. Because I I opened up my RDP session in my Windows box, and just if I need to check my email or browse the internet, I'll just do it on there. You would think that, but that's not what you see. And I will, anyone who doesn't believe this, Feel free to come out. You let me know what state you'd like to go to in the country, and I will set up. If we have a client there, set it up. You can, you can come do a walkthrough. At this moment, every AltaSpeed client that has a need for a Windows box, if they have some piece of software that they need to run, that Windows box has been virtualized, and they use a Linux desktop to access that virtualized desktop. And uh, what you see when these people are sitting inside of their RDP session is they open up to do whatever they have to do and then they just close it and they'll open up Firefox or Chrome if they just want to check something on their computer. And that's an easy, easy sell because it's not Linux altruism that I'm selling here. It's, hey, when your Windows box crashes, we issue a command and it's restored in about four seconds. And oh, by the way, you got a virus, you got a malware. Yeah, we just blew the entire Windows ecosystem away and we restored it in about 15 seconds. That's a, that's a, those are, that is actual time to blow away an image and roll back in, uh, in um, Vert Manager, for example. And as of today, May 29th, 2017, I am going to get to go to all of these clients that we have been putting on these virtual infrastructures for years and say, hey, next time you upgrade your workstations, we have a new drop-in solution for you that already works with your existing infrastructure. Oh, and by the way, it costs just a, a pennies on the dollar to upgrade the actual front-end clients. And I just, I cannot get over how significant I think this is, because to me, this is step one. This is baby step one in a long series of baby steps that ultimately ends with we are going to be using everywhere we're going to be using Windows. We're going to do it in a virtual instance and where it becomes where its ability for Windows to screw anything up is at least somewhat hindered. And the only real operating system we can bank on, the only real operating system we're going to ship and run on hardware because we don't have to worry about viruses. We don't have to worry about it crashing. It is, you know, gaining traction in the security world. We don't have to worry about Patch Tuesday. It's Linux. So I think that is pretty incredible. I want to go back to the phones. 855-450-NOAA, 855-450-6624. Yeah, you got a couple minutes if you want to call in. Reggie is calling from Ohio. Hi, Reggie. How are you? Uh, it's Reggie. Reg, Reggie, I'm sorry. Hi, Reggie. Yeah, big fan of yours, Noah, and I'm mad that last came to an end. But... I actually had a question about the Apple Today thing that they just launched, and you can go into an Apple store now, and they'll teach you things about your device or your Mac, and you can go on, like, photo walks, and they'll teach you how to edit photos with your iPhone. Awesome. I was wondering, like, do you see that that's going to be a big pull for people to go over to the Mac OS platform, or and do you think that we need something like that in Linux, where people can walk into a store, get hands-on support, and, you know, tutorials with their devices? Yes. 
Yes, I absolutely – yes to all of those questions. Yes, I think that that is going to be a hindrance to Linux. Yes, I think we absolutely need to get on top of that. One of the big things I, I hear from people – there's the software availability thing. We, you know, we talked about that at, at, at nauseum. But one of the things that we don't talk about a lot, but it actually does hinder a lot of people from switching to Linux, and is one of the primary catalysts that got the show on the air, is that most people use a Mac because a lot of their friends are using Mac, or because uh, because um, you know a lot of their business is using Mac, and so they become comfortable with it, and they have other people that they can ask for the recommendations. A lot of people who are using Windows, they stick with Windows because they can ask those questions with their friends and family and stuff like that. If you don't have somebody that you can ask a question to, if you don't have somebody to walk you through some of the major pain points, if you run into and say, listen, I have to get my paper, my term paper due and I'm in college and I don't have time to go through forms and post questions and get snotty responses and then go back and I don't have time for any of that. I just need to know how I set these margins or how I get this particular formatting or whatever it is. If you don't have some place you can go to do that, then you then you shy away from that platform. And there's one of the primary catalysts that started the Ask Noah shows. We want to be a resource for people like that. I actually, a couple of years ago, didn't work out. I tried to go to um, local electronic stores, places that were selling computers. And I said, I will come in and, uh, you know, like on, on Saturdays or Sunday or something like that. And I will do like a, a four-hour presentation on how people can use the hardware you're selling. And one of the things I wanted to do was Chromebooks at the time were really taking off uh, and the profit margins were actually pretty big, you know, as, at least as, as they can be for electronic stores because that stuff is sold practically next to cost. And I said, I'll come in, I'll show you how you, instead of selling this Chromebook as just a web browser, I'll come in and show you how you can use it to run Inkscape and you can, you know, create professional graphics and how you can do video editing. I was, I had the Pixel at the time. I was doing video editing on the Pixel. I said, I, I can show people how to do this stuff um, and you guys can sell the hardware. And th- th- I think th- the primary reason that didn't go over was because uh, we compete in a lot of the same ways. You know, they sell PC hardware, we sell PC hardware, and they a lot of those same places that were selling the hardware, they also sold, you know, services to go with it, setting things up. And so I think they were a little hesitant to, to go forward. But suffice to say, yes, I absolutely think you're correct that that's a problem. And I, I, if anyone has a solution, even if it's a, Noah, this is what I want you to do, or, or an idea of how we could how we could provide something like that. I'd be interested to hear it. In fact, did you know that we answer your questions or suggestions, stuff like that, on the air? Uh, if you go over to asknoahshow.com, we will take your uh, your questions and stuff like that. And we actually had uh, last week we set aside the bottom of the hour to focus on noobs questions. And last week we offered to set up C file for five users. And then like a jerk, I took off halfway through the week and the ask Noah program is not officially um, run by alt speed. So to speak, it's just, it's kind of my thing that I just, I come in here and do. So nobody from the company uh, had any real idea of what was happening. And so they got a couple calls and they said, what, what is this thing? And I said, yeah, we got to set this up. So I have all of you, if you send in contact information, we have it all. I will enter those tickets in either late tonight or early tomorrow. You'll hear back from somebody and we'll get those rolling. Um, Thor wrote in at the Ask Noah show and asked how I am organizing myself since I have ADD. And the answer to that is I'm using C file with sublime text. And maybe I will have more on that in the next couple days, but I'm basically using it as a brain dump. That brings, did you think I forgot? I'm professional. I'm not going to leave us with dead air. You guys are listening to Logos Radio, KEQQ 88.3 LPFM. We'll see you back next week.